Hey, everybody. This is Heidi St. John. Thanks for tuning in today. You guys have found me at my little corner of the internet. I'm so excited today on this Thursday to welcome my friend, my dear friend, Linda Hobart to the show. I was telling you guys that she's going to come on and she is. We're going to spend some time today talking about socialism. Stick around. I think you're going to be encouraged. You guys know by now that I am running for the House of Representatives representing Washington State's 3rd Congressional District. Listen, my voice in the United States Congress is a voice for the nation. And so if you're interested in helping me get to Congress, we have a massive fundraising deadline. It's coming up on June 30th. Please donate. You can become a volunteer as part of our local team. Or if you're located in different parts of the country, you can volunteer as a prayer warrior or you can volunteer to just help us out financially We need those contributions. Again, a big fundraising deadline coming up on June 30th. You guys can find out more information and you can get involved at HeidiStJohnForCongress.com. This ad was paid for by friends of Heidi St. John. So thanks for tuning in today. Lots of stuff going on in the life of Heidi St. John, and you guys have been following me right now. I am getting ready to unpack and set up at the Homeschool Iowa Convention. So if you guys are not around, you're missing it. If you're anywhere near Des Moines, I'm going to encourage you coming out. It's going to be a wonderful, wonderful event. You guys are not going to be sorry that you made it there. Also want to give a couple of shout outs really quickly. First of all, to Linda from Florida, who's been financially supporting the podcast. Thank you so much, Linda. She said, Heidi, I'm praying that God will be near uh, as you and Jay step out into the journey as leaders in our country. Boy, I'll tell you, I was just talking to my friend, uh, Linda Hobar about this before I got, I said, man, the, the battle is real. And boy, she understands it. We've had a heck of a time even getting the recording ready. So I'm excited to hear what God's going to do. Uh, Linda Hobar, for those of you who are not familiar with her, is the author of a curriculum called Mystery of History. And this is how I found out about her many years ago. She also happens to be just a genuine person. She loves the Lord Jesus. She knows her stuff. And I'm so happy that she's here. Linda, my friend, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Heidi. So good to be here. You and I have been uh, palling around on the circuit now for uh, kind of a long time. Mm -hmm. Several years. I've been at this at least 20 now. Yep. Yep. And you, and last year, I mean, we all kind of stood back and scratched our heads and watched as the world sort of imploded. And uh, I wasn't really sure, you know, how's the homeschool market going to respond to this? And so it's encouraging for me to see people back out on the road. What's your experience been on the homeschool circuit so far this year? Oh, I tell you what, it's been fabulous. I feel like the Lord is at work. And what encourages me is feeling as if he's been at work in that, if you just consider for a minute, he took people like me literally 20 years ago to start passionately writing curriculum that would work at home for families. And who knew we would be here now? You know, with people like me writing curriculum, um, we have the experience, we have the passion, and we're ready to serve. So Folks are finding us. It's an exciting time to have your kids at home. It really is. And it's necessary, right? Because we're watching the schools literally, I mean, our elementary schools, our high schools, and certainly our universities trying to erase the real history of this nation and inject it 
with something as deadly as socialism. And you and I have talked about this on the road. I have loved hearing you speak because you, you're such a great storyteller and you, you have this way of just drawing people in. But I want to jump right into the topic because this is a big one. Our country is at the jumping off place right now. I mean, this is the reason why I decided to run for Congress. You know, you don't, you don't just go, I think I'll run for Congress. And you don't just say, you know, I think I'll just write a history curriculum. The Lord has to move you. And we're in trouble right now as a nation, as we're watching these ideas of socialism and democratic socialism, which is, hello, it's a joke. It's the same thing uh, as regular socialism, just you vote for it. Can you give the listeners a definition or two of socialism? So I'm thinking right now about the parents who are like, how do I, you know, package this up and talk to my kids about it? Yes. In fact, we could probably spend our whole time today trying to properly define socialism because backing up a second, there was Gallup and Harvard polls that would tell us that, you know, 50 to 55 percent of young Americans favored socialism. But in 2020, that jumped. We now have 70 percent of young people favoring socialism. But get this, Heidi, ironically, Reason Institute discovered that only 16% of young people could properly define socialism, which leads me to believe that the terminology is something very confusing to them. They don't really know what it is. So if I may, I have several definitions. You ready? Yeah, let's hear it. Yeah, of course. I'm, I'm always taking notes like I do with you. All right. Well, first and foremost, the short definition is this, that socialism is the government ownership of the means of production. So in quick contrast, that means that it's not private ownership of the means of production. It's the government ownership of the means of production. Now, as people kind of let those words settle in, let me give another definition. We'll call this the medium sized one. All right. Now, this comes from a couple of economists. So this is from Robert Lawson, Benjamin Powell. Here's what they said. Socialists of all stripes agree that private property should be abolished and replaced with collective ownership. So it has a lot to do with collective versus private. This means that in practice, the government should control everything that goes into the means of production. And what do they mean by that? Okay, it means raw materials, factories, labor. They go on to say that the government, not individuals, decides what to produce how to produce and for whom to produce. So it's really about production. All right, so that's our medium definition. Now, if you can handle it, I've got two more. Um, so a longer definition really pulls from history. And I'm borrowing this from, from Paul Skousen. He wrote the book, The Naked Socialist. I'm, re I'm reading that right now. It's in my, it's in my motor home. <laughs> a G-rated book. It's really thick. But um, so uh, Skousen would say that if you look historically, that really socialism, because it's like man's idea, it's the very opposite of God's ideas, you know, it's been around a long time. And so it would exist when they're all powerful rulers. So think of, you know, kings and queens and emperors, right? Second, he would say socialism is when society is divided into caste or classes. Think, Heidi, about medieval feudalism. Um, you know, back then, value was deemed by birth, not by merit. It was just how you were born. Now, he would also say, Skousen, that socialism exists when all things are in common. <laughs> you know, where we kind of come up with that is the whole everyone gets a trophy. We've been doing that for a while, haven't we? <laughs> he would also say socialism is when all things are regulated. That's not hard to imagine, that heavy government regulation. He would also say socialism is when compliance is forced. 
I mean, we just have to look at the USSR because that was the first modern nation to implement Marxism. Thank you, Vladimir Lenin. And socialism would exist when there's control of information. Oh, of course, I think really of a lot of things, but of North Korea, where, you know, information is not allowed in or out freely whatsoever. And then last, socialism exists when there are no unalienable rights. Ooh, and isn't that a term that just gets to Americans? Because unalienable rights are the ones that originate with God. Those are the ones that can't be transferred or taken away. Well, and you see uh, Biden talking about, well, that little Second Amendment thing, you know, that little right to keep and bear arms, that's not really something that was permanent. You know, it could be adjusted. That should terrify Americans. It should. It should. Now, as my grand finale, though, on definitions, I think we need to take the time to go to Karl Marx. So if you're ready, hmm, you ready for Karl Marx? Oh, I have studied him in depthly. That's my job. I'm a historian. So I've read the Communist Manifesto and, and I've come up with six points. These are just my points that kind of, I think, help maybe the, the average person digest it. So you ready? He would say, first of all, that all conflict was rooted in an economic class struggle. Okay. Between the poor and the rich. He called the rich the bourgeoisie. You know, it's just a great French word. Now, number two, to settle that conflict, you know what he wanted to get rid of? One of those two classes, but which one? You know the answer, Heidi, but which one did he want to get rid of? <laughs> well, I'm thinking he wanted to get rid of the ruling class. Oh, no, wait, that's wrong. The bourgeoisie or the capital, you know, the system of capitalism. So really what you have to picture is that Karl Marx had a two-class view of society. And he thought, well, I'll just get one, rid of one of those classes. But one of those classes included shop owners, factory owners, landowners. So ownership was a big part of that. All right, but let's move on. To eliminate capitalism then, all this ownership, he said, let's deprive the bourgeoisie of private property or private industry. Ha, huh. seeing a lot of that today. And then he said to take away private property, let's just, the, the proletariat, the working class really needs to rise up in by force and revolt. And he had a nickname for it. He called it the dictatorship of the proletariat. I mean, so so who's in charge then? Hmm. Then he said, well, once the proletariat achieved revolt somehow, and this is the important one for your listeners, then a transitional socialist government would have to be put in place. That was where the government owned you know, property in the industry came from. So for your visual learner picture, if you had a little chart in front of you, and of course I have this chart, but y'all can't see it, but that socialism by Karl Marx's definition was a step. It wasn't meant to last. It was supposed to be a step to transition a society from um, multiple classes to a single class. So to go from capitalism to communism, he said socialism needed to be put in place. All right. Now there's one more. He really believed that, okay, once socialism would balance out the haves with the have-nots by what you know, a forced redistribution of wealth. Then he thought that classless, stateless, pure communism would be achieved. And he had another nickname for it. He said, oh, then man will live in a freely developed association. Okay, quiz time, Heidi. <laughs> According to Karl Marx's own definition, have we ever seen communism achieved? I mean, really, have we ever seen a, a free association in a society that's classless and stateless? 
new. However, we have five nations today that I would say are perpetually stuck in socialism. They're stuck there, which is the government-owned means of production. Can you name them? There's five. You just Google. Now, well, we know Venezuela is not working out very well. Right, but they're not on the official list yet. They're in transition. But if you went to oh, the, the United States, <laughs> we're not there yet either, though so we're working on it. But I'll give you the quick answer to save time. So it's China, Cuba, our neighbor, North Korea, that's not an unknown, Vietnam, and Laos. It's Laos that throws most people off just because it's a little less familiar to us. But those are the five today that really are stuck in socialism. They try to call it communism, but see, if real communism existed, they would be stateless, classless, and in a free association. So really, mankind has yet to achieve that. Well, and honestly, I mean, I'm listening to you talking. It sounds like communism is really just an extreme form of socialism because from an ideological standpoint, there's not much difference between the two. This is very true. I mean, one was designed to be a stepping stone toward the other. That's really it, which is why when I give talks on socialism, I like to take people through the history, looking at, again, Vladimir Lenin, who would seek to be the first to implement Marxism and, you know, what happened in the Soviet Union then. Stalin followed him, Mao in China, you know, and the list goes on. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering, you're talking about, you know, Mao, and there are a lot of people that aren't familiar with these names, which frankly, it's it's sad because that's what the schools have done, right? So they, they're not telling people what a murderer Mao was. And so if you go down to the streets of, say, Portland, Oregon right now, the woman who was running for uh, mayor of Portland was wearing a poodle skirt that had Mao's picture all over it. And the students from Portland State University were like, absolutely, this is the guy. And this is what, I mean, we're, we're marching that direction. Can, can you give listeners a little bit? Because there's a lot of people who are like, Lenin, what does it matter? Karl Marx, what does it matter? You know, people don't understand who these people are. Is it important for us to know who they were so that we can understand the mindset? Or would you say, no, it's more important you just understand what the ideology was? Oh, it's like, please, where where shall we begin? I tell you what, how about since you brought up Mal, you want me to just go there? I can give you a few paragraphs on just like who he is, what he did, and the stats, which real quick, he was responsible for 50 to 70 million deaths, which is more than Stalin or Hitler. So sure, let's go there. Um, He basically, the story is much like the Russians, China would go into a civil war to decide whether or not they would go communist, all right? So on a little chart, if you had one, picture nationalists on one side, and actually Sun Yat-sen started them. He died of cancer, so Chiang Kai-shek took over. So you have nationalists on one side, and you have communists on the other, and the communists were led by Mao Zedong. Now, just like in Russia, because so many know that Russia fell to communism, China did the same. The nationalists lost. And so Mao Mao formed the People's Republic of China. That was 1949. And here's what he did. One of the first things he did is he grouped farmers into these collectives. It was called a five-year plan. Stalin had done the same thing and it didn't work. And by taking over the production of even their food, like 800,000 starved under the first five-year plan under Mao. 
Let's go on. That's just the beginning. Then he would attempt to stamp out religion because, of course, communists would be atheists. So he would persecute at least a million Buddhists in Tibet. You know, he exiled the Dalai Lama. You know, he's still in exile. Of course, we know now that Christians have long suffered in China. And today the Uyghur Muslims are suffering. Anyway, so Mao would have a prison system. His was called the Lao Gai system. It's a little lesser known to the West, but there was a system in place. Actually, one of the threats of socialism that they all have in common, elaborate prison systems. We saw that under Vladimir Lenin, under Stalin. Yeah, moving on. Okay, so get this. So those collectives that I tried to describe, they did fail. So he came up with a new plan. How about a, the Great Leap Forward is what he called it, where he tried to make China a steel giant. And he would literally take, so picture a farmer in China having backyard farm equipment. Well, he pulled that out and instead put steel furnaces in people's backyards because, right, under socialism, the state dictates all means of production. Well, it didn't work. And it was a devastating example of the great leap forward was because this communist paradise just failed. It led to the mass killing of tens of millions because they too starved. I mean, 20 to 30 million starved under the great leap forward. So don't tell me these are tried and tested plans. Now, I, I have one more I have to throw in here, though. Here we go. So let's not forget that Mao instituted a 10-year cultural revolution. This one makes my skin crawl. So here's the deal, is that young Chinese were recruited to actually try to take the older Chinese who revered their history and they sought to destroy it because that was supposed to make them more compliant to this state plan. So these gangs would tear down statues, destroy property. They had these things called struggle sessions where they would take an older Chinese and try to um, uh, persuade them to like, again, give up on their heritage and their history. And I have this one picture that just haunts me. It's a picture of a little old Chinese woman. She has a heavy weight tied to her back and in her hands, there's these Chinese trinkets that are precious to her and that represent her life and heritage and history. And anyway, she's being publicly humiliated for holding on to those things. That's under the 10-year cultural revolution, they called it. So the number of deaths varies, but we think maybe as many as 2 million Chinese might have died under these practices of the cultural revolution. So again, by failed policy, by famine, by coercion, Mao Zedong, we think scores between 50 to 70 million lives. So to your friend in Portland that is interested in furthering this ideology, I just think I do not understand, or maybe she does not know this part of the story. Well, I think that's kind of what we're up against. You know, I feel like we don't understand our history. We don't understand who these dictators were. I mean, this is what's happening in our major cities across the country right now. You go into downtown Portland, you can't recognize it anymore. They've torn down the statues. They're busy burning the city. Oh, that's a cultural revolution now. Yeah. Oh, we're, well, everything that you just read to me, I'm like, check, 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 check. I mean, we see this. And what's terrifying to me is that these young people think they're on a righteous crusade. 
And this comes from, this is coming absolutely from the schools. And so it's so important for parents, you know, we need to be teaching our children history. We need to be studying these people. When your kids come home and they say, hey, you know, what about Stalin? He had a good idea. Fine. Get out the history books while you still can. The truth matters. So obviously, you know, history is your thing, This is which is why I love having you on here. Can you describe socialism in ancient times so we know what it's like now? You've just described what, it, what it's like now. How did it start? How did we sort of get here? Okay. Well, honestly, I think we could go back to the Garden of Eden, if we were quite honest, and see where Satan whispered to Adam and Eve, do your own thing. Don't follow God's governance. Because what did God set up in the in the garden? One rule. Don't eat this one fruit from one tree. But, you know, they did. And man sinned. And we believe sin entered the world. But honestly, if you go straight to the Egyptians, they did, in fact, their pharaohs claim to be gods, which is, again, what Satan's whispering like, oh, be your own god. So the pharaohs practiced really a form of socialism because everything was heavily regulated in ancient Egypt. I think we all know that in Greece, man tampered around with democracy, right? The ancient Greeks, but they weren't able to sustain it. Even Plato predicted that. And I think that's in part because they did not have a balance of powers. Well, then the Romans tried their own, you know, heavy regulation and they imploded eventually. And let me back up, interestingly, too. let's look at the Hebrews when they finally would enter the promised land after the exodus. Do you know when they were under the period of the judges, they actually fared pretty well because they followed God's laws, you know, until they whined that they wanted to have kings. God said, "Okay, you can have your kings, but he warned them, you know, this isn't going to go well. So sure enough. Then we know that the kingdom of Israel did have some kings and then there was problems with the monarchy and and on and on it went. But, yeah, those are just some examples from ancient times. And then, you know, man just kept going. And according to Skousen, just to go back to him, the author of The Naked Socialist, he would say that it was really the brave Americans of the colonies who really turned that tide the right direction and fought off socialism first. And so what secured that was the Constitution. And, you know, so just picture like a ship of uh, tyranny that's been going one way a long time as ancient man again, you know, groveled around through you know, the Middle Ages and the Renaissance. And again, he's trying his own way, his own way, his own way. And so I do feel like man turned the ship toward freedom, the right direction with the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. It's just that the founding fathers turned a blind eye to many things and they just didn't let everybody on the first ship. And so, yes, we're still struggling through that part. I hope you guys have been enjoying this conversation with Melinda Hobart, the author of a curriculum called Mystery of History. Thank you guys so much for listening. And I'll see you back here tomorrow at the intersection of faith and culture. For more encouragement, visit me online at momstronginternational.com.